um, the reason is, is that we really have a reason to celebrate and to, to rejoice. Michael said we're talking about the resurrection this morning, and so he's going to lead us in a couple numbers after I'm done teaching uh, in celebration of what we're looking at this morning. Um, but before we step into the teaching, let me ask you to pray with me. Would you do that? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word, and we ask that you'd bring our focus to this point where we're ready to hear from you. These are your words. These are what you caused through your Holy Spirit, individuals to write down for us thousands of years ago that still speak into our life today. And Father, you said your word would never pass away and that it's uh, alive. So God, we ask that you would make it alive for us in this moment, that your spirit would speak to us. And give us application for our lives and for this week ahead of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, a couple weeks ago, I asked this big question uh, when we were looking at the crucifixion. Why is the crucifixion such a big deal? And I asked a few of you that were here and present during that period of time, pull out your cell phones and, and text a friend or um, send a note out. Well, quite a number of you did that. And um, some put it on Twitter, some put it on Facebook, and just put the question up, why is the, res- or why is the crucifixion such a big deal? Interestingly, a lot of people started shooting back responses to those notes in the middle of the service. Um, people who were involved in um, various activities who felt a little guilt that somebody was asking them the question, why is Jesus' crucifixion such a big deal? Um, equally, this morning, we have a really big question before us, why is the resurrection such a big deal? Now, that would seem like a, an issue that we would have a very obvious answer to. We're in church Sunday morning, most people on church would have an answer immediately to that question, why is the resurrection such a big deal? But think about the people that you know that don't go to church, the people that you know that have no affiliation in, in their life with godly behavior. Think about those individuals who probably couldn't answer that question. Why is the resurrection such a big deal? See, if we had John end with chapter 19, where we left off at last week, Jesus is placed in the tomb, it'd be kind of ordinary, wouldn't it? Because that's what happens on planet Earth. We die, the biography ends, we're placed in a grave. And if that was the case with Jesus, we would have a situation in which he was an individual who had uh, exceptional character, had very, very high teachings, The storyline would end, and it would appear that his aspirations were too lofty to be true. And we would be a sad, 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 pathetic people. That's what Paul said. You remember that? comes from the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Are we pitied? No. You guys, this is participatory this morning, okay? This is like Easter morning, all right? So we're not to be pitied. Now, we understand that what we're looking at is John reads so much like a news story last week and the last two weeks, it's been like a news reporter sat there and wrote down a narrative And it it very much, we were engaged in it, and we left with that last verse last week that sounds like an obituary. 
It says this, John 19, 16, so they handed him over to be crucified. That's the news story part of it. Here's the obituary part, verse 42. Since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now you could pull out your copy of the Lansing State Journal. Turn to the obituary section. Jewish male, 33 years old, crucified by Rome, memorial service Sunday morning. So they thought. That's what everybody anticipated. It's like they read an obituary. And in the very instant when all appears to have failed, the most improbable events begin to unfold, which no one had anticipated. Now, where we left off at last week, Joseph and Nicodemus prepare his body very, very quickly because sundown's almost there. And they take his body, wrap it in the linens, and put it in the tomb. It's over. And they walk away. That's where we left off last week. So on Sunday morning, when the women arrive, what's their great worry? Their great worry as they arrive is they don't have a key to the door to get inside the mausoleum. They have no way to roll away the stone so they can get inside and give more preparation to Jesus' body for the burial. How do they get in the tomb? That's where we pick up this morning in John chapter 20 and verse 1. If you want to follow along on the screen or perhaps you have your own Bible. John chapter 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now the first day that he mentions there is Sunday morning because Shabbat, Sabbath, was the day before on Saturday. And there's thousands, tens of thousands of people sleeping all around Jerusalem out in the streets because it's Passover. And everybody's there for the party. And the celebration is huge. So Mary makes her way through the city where all these people are sleeping, finds herself in front of the tomb. Mark says very early in the morning. John says it's still dark. And this great earthquake begins to shake the ground. This is what we're told in verse 2 of Matthew 28. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now John only mentions Mary Magdalene. Uh, She's from a region known as Magdala. So Mary of Magdala, that's her hometown. That's how she gets the name Mary Magdalene. He only mentions her, but there's other women. There's a large group of women who have set out with her to head to the tomb that morning while it's still dark. Apparently, she goes ahead of all of them. She's in such a hurry to get there, she leaves the rest of the group behind. And she notices on the way, whenever the earthquake took place, when she arrives, the stone has been moved out of the way, and she does not see the angel sitting on top of the stone. She does a very quick 180 and turns and runs back to Jerusalem, leaving this large group of women behind because she hasn't bothered to look inside. So the other women continue to approach the tomb, and they start looking inside, and that's when an angel speaks to them. But Mary's missed out on all that. She's not present when the angel announces Jesus is alive. Go with me to verse 3 of Matthew 28. You'll see it on the screen. And his appearance, this is the angel arriving, and his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said, Come and see the place where he was lying." 
That's very significant. We can talk about this after the service if we get a chance to interact. That women were the very first witnesses to the resurrection. And here's why this is really significant. In this period of time, in the first century, the witness of women was not even acceptable in court. Even if there was three or four women, they wouldn't bring women into a courtroom. Only men could give testimony. And so that the disciples saw it fit to say that God, by the way, showed up to women first, and the women are the ones that came and reported it to the men, so the men would go check it out, just fairly amplifies the fact that the disciples are not trying to make this up. If they were trying to make this up, they would say, well, men were the first to see it, because that would be accepted by everybody in the community. So it's very significant that God showed up to women first so that they would begin spreading it abroad to the men. Go with me to verse 2 now. This is talking about Mary again. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John talking about himself. He always refers to himself that way. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. You see the pronoun we? She's talking about the large group. We, meaning the large group of ladies she left behind, we don't know where they've laid him. So Mary fears the worst. That's why she ran she thinks his body's been stolen, secretly removed by the enemies. And at this very moment, while she's back in Jerusalem reporting to the disciples, the other women are learning Jesus is alive. The angel is talking to them, and she missed out on that. Now, at this point, Peter and John are off to the races. Go with me to verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. <laughs> I've told you before, this is the 90-year-old John remembering this, okay? So the 90-year-old John is remembering there was a time when I could really run. I could outrun Peter. As a matter of fact, if you read the story closely, you'll see that he reported it three times that he beat Peter to the tomb. He's so excited about this. So they're so excited, they, they start out running. They're bolting for the tomb trying to get there. And then this sense of a powerful emotion comes over him. Whether at the point that he's running or when he first arrives, this unbelievable sense of, is this possible? This incomprehensible disbelief. And they've hit a moment here. A moment that every one of us had hit at some point in our life. Your friends who are not in church or in a relationship with God will hit it at some point in their life. It's a moment of a crisis of belief. Do I really believe God is who He says He is? And this is the crisis of belief moment for John when he arrives at the tomb. Everything that I've heard about him, is it possible that it's real? Go with me to verse 5. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but it did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. Now, Peter arrives slightly winded and bending over, <laughs> but he doesn't hesitate. He just rushes right into the tomb. John stays outside the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings, but he doesn't go in. Well, what explains that? Well, possibly a sense of, in the Jewish mind, this is very real, not wanting to come in contact with a dead body, a sense of defilement. That's possible. 
Or it could be just out of respect for that's where the Christ was laid. And I don't want to go in there. But for whatever reason, Peter's very true to his nature. He has no inhibitions. He just rushes right into the tomb. And what he sees is astounding. The body is nowhere. But the linen wrappings are there. Now the chances are very good that because of the position that I serve in and the work that I do, I've probably been to more funerals than most of you. Probably times five I've been to more funerals than the most of you. And I can tell you that every single funeral that I've ever been to, I have never walked down the aisle and seen a coffin open and look inside the coffin and only seen clothing there. That would get the attention of the crowd, wouldn't it? If you go to a funeral, you look inside a coffin and you only see clothing. That's what Peter is seeing. He's looking inside the coffin and he's only seeing clothing there. Now that might seem like a minor detail, but consider this. The charges that the Jewish leaders brought against the disciples saying they had stolen the body of Jesus and hauled it away have just evaporated just on the fact that the clothing is there. Who stealing a body from a tomb would bother to unwrap the body first and leave all the linen wrappings there? Who would do that? So this is nearly impossible based on what I told you last week. Remember when we talked about Joseph and Nicodemus taking Jesus' body and preparing it for burial by wrapping it with linen and putting spices in the folds of the linen? What we talked about last week was that when the aloe and the myrrh, a chemical compound, were joined together, they had a reaction. And the spices that they used were aloe and myrrh. So the reaction was this. When the spice was put on the body, it would draw the moisture out of the body. But when it came in contact with the chemicals, immediately the chemical would harden the linen wrappings, creating a cocoon effect around the body. Who's going to take the time to unwrap a corpse just to leave the wrappings there? That's why Jesus said, Lazarus, when he's resurrected, he needs some help, guys. Go unwrap the clothing off from him because he couldn't get out of it by himself. It had to be cut away. There's only one way the linen clothes could be in this condition. That's if the body passed right through them as Jesus arose. So what Peter sees in front of him is this empty cocoon of linen wrappings. Go with me to verse 7. And the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself, so the other disciple who had first come into the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. Now this is not the kind of thing the human mind would dream up. John's an eyewitness to this event. Let me explain for you what this means, rolled up in a place by itself. The wrappings that were done in the first century always started at the shoulder. So they would start at the base of the neck and begin wrapping around the body, and the arms were stiff against the body. You've probably seen images of mummies before. This is similar to that period of time. And so they would begin wrapping around the body all the way down to the toes. The neck and the head were always wrapped separately. So you look at this passage and you would say, okay, we're told that the face cloth which had been on his head is not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Who took the time to set that thing aside? Jesus. Can you imagine this? Wait till they see this. And he puts it aside. 
I can just see God. God's got a great sense of humor. Jesus taking this head thing off and setting it aside. And that's what does it for these believers at this moment. I want to show you this word here rolled up in the Greek language. Only Greek word I'll use for you this morning, but it's the word entelusio. And this is the, um, the definition for it. It means to twist or to entwine, to wind up. So it doesn't mean that Jesus took off this head wrapping and folded it very neatly. It means that what was wound tightly around him and wrapped up was still in the place by itself. So it says rolled up, meaning the way that it was rolled around him, it's still rolled up in a place by itself, and Jesus just took it and sat it aside, still retaining the shape of his face. Now John's outside the tomb wondering what in the world has made Peter, so silent. Peter's always noisy. He's being so quiet inside. And at this point, the other disciples, that's the way John refers to himself here, he apparently does not see the face cloth until he enters into the tomb. And suddenly, everything makes sense to him. The Jesus who was scourged The Jesus who was crucified, the Jesus who was buried, is the Jesus who is risen from the dead. And so in verse 8 it says, he saw and believed. Meaning he put the two pieces together. There's a transition that took place for him. I want you to note, maybe if you have your own Bible this morning, when you look at John 20 verse 5 and verse 6 and verse 8, the word saw is mentioned three times. But in the Greek language, it has three different meanings. Same word, saw, saw, saw. And in your Bible, it might even have an asterisk next to the word saw. That's because it has a different punctuation. So the first time when John looks in the tomb in John verse 5, it means that he glanced in. He looked and he saw the linen wrappings. The next time it occurs in verse 6 means when Peter looked in and he went into the tomb rushing in, He carefully observed. He looked very cautiously. But in verse 8, when it's speaking of John seeing, it means that he perceived with intelligent comprehension. John's looking very carefully now. He's putting the pieces together because there is nothing about an empty tomb to make you believe in the resurrection. There's empty tombs all over Israel waiting for the occupant to be laid there. But an empty tomb with the carcass of the linen wrappings, the stone that's been rolled away, John immediately starts to put together the pieces of what Jesus had spoken before. And he knows now in this moment, he's in the presence of the power of God. He's standing in the tomb where the resurrection has just taken place. Now, most early witnesses, and there were hundreds who came to Christ in these first few weeks, who began to understand what was going on. Most of the early witnesses, they came to faith in Jesus because they saw the resurrected Jesus. John is helping us to understand that he came to faith in Christ before he ever saw Jesus because he takes a step backwards and sees the linen clothing and his mind is flooded with all the words Jesus used speaking of his resurrection. Let me show you this on the screen, John 2.19. Jesus speaking here. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
But look what John wrote in verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the Scripture and the words which Jesus had spoken. Words like this from John eleven twenty five: I am the resurrection and the life. These are the words that John was assembling in his mind as he's looking at the linen wrappings, and he begins to understand. Now, John is a lot like you and I. We live in a period of time where we can't physically look at Jesus. We can't see him. John is not seeing Jesus. But we have the record of the Word of God. We hold it in our hands. We see it on the screen. We hear it quoted. And that Word is true. It's the Word of God saying that Jesus was resurrected. And so John put these pieces together. So as I look at this, I have to step back and I say, this example of the linen wrappings in the tomb is so powerful that it gives a whole new witness to me and to you personally. Because up until this point, the tomb has been the symbol of Satan's victory. When Satan came into the Garden of Eden, he introduced sin to Adam and Eve. They willingly rebelled against God. What happened as a result of it? Death. Death entered the world. And Satan introduced death. And death has been the king over the planet up until this point in time. Death has ruled. And so the one who brought hell's destruction onto planet earth, he's been in that graveyard. He's been doing his work. And Jesus there in a tomb, in the thing that was the symbol of Satan's power, has left behind the trophies of his victory. He's taken his linen wrappings and set them aside. This is his trophy shelf. He's leaving behind what had encapsulated him as though he was a spoil of war. And so these grave clothes become a quiet witness in the silence of the tomb. They're screaming loud, Jesus is not here, he's resurrected. And all this is enough for John, even though he did not understand. That's what we see in the next verse, verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now that verse takes us back to my question at the beginning of the message. Why did Jesus have to rise again? They did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again. We'll get to that in just a minute, but understand this. By the time the 90-year-old John wrote this book that you hold in your hands, the church, which had spread around the known world, had put together the pieces of the Old Testament, and they began to assemble the prophecies in such a way that now it made sense to them. But in this moment, while they're standing in the tomb, they can't put the pieces together. Verses like this, Psalm 1610, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. See, for generations, they'd had these verses written down. They didn't know what to do with them. They didn't make sense. How could the Messiah die? How could he actually go to hell and not be abandoned to decay, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay? They didn't know what to do with that. But eventually, they assembled the pieces together. And what I want you to note out of that, it's the Word of God which brings them to a mature understanding of God's nature and character. Putting together and assembling these words. Now, whether Peter in this moment was a believer himself is very doubtful. 
It appears that he went away completely confused. As a matter of fact, look with me on the screen, Luke 24, 12. Peter went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, just speculation on my part, I speculate that John understood that Jesus was resurrected. But this is the speculate. He probably believed that Jesus ascended immediately, that Jesus was resurrected and went to be with the Father. That would explain why when the women came to tell the story about what they had seen, that most of the disciples repelled them and said, that's nonsense. Why should we believe what you had to say? Well, let's move forward. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 11 tells us that Mary came along. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. So you ask yourself, were they there the whole time? Were they, were they just cloaked and they didn't want Peter and John to see them? So they're sitting in there just smiling, their pearly white teeth shining. This is so great. Well, we don't know, but for some reason they make themselves visible to Mary because we're told she stoops and she looks into the tomb. In the first century, when a tomb was created for someone in Israel, they carved it out of limestone against the side of a wall, very soft rock, but it always had an antechamber, a smaller chamber about four feet high, which was the entrance, and once you stoop down through the antechamber, it opened up into a much larger chamber. That's the case with this one because that's why there's enough room for a couple men to stand inside it. So that's why it says she stooped to look inside the tomb, but she didn't go all the way in. She's in the antechamber, but she sees the linen wrappings. Now Mary's return, she doesn't know about the grave clothes until she looks. She doesn't know about the angels inside until she looks. Now whenever angels appear in the Bible, they generally appear in human form looking very much like men. There's a few occasions where when angels show up, they take on what's called a celestial image, but in most cases, they look like men, and that appears to be the case here because they immediately engage in conversation with Mary, and she answers them. Now, you would expect that if you were going to a cemetery and you saw some fresh dirt on the ground and it was piled up a little bit high, maybe the canopy is still over the dirt, you would expect that a funeral had just taken place And if you saw a woman standing next to that weeping, you would say, that's normal. Weeping takes place in a cemetery. People are grieving. So why the question that the angels present in verse 13? And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now she's weeping in a cemetery. She should be weeping in a cemetery. Except for this point, how often do we mourn over the absence of things which in reality are right there within our grasp when God is working around us and we can't see it? But because we're so caught up in despair, we completely miss over something that God has already brought a solution to, but because we're so sight-limited with our blinders on, we totally miss the fact that He's right there in front of our eyes. So they ask the question, why are you weeping? You're not supposed to be weeping. I I note something. It's kind of a silent statement out of this passage that our lack of taking God at His word and the things that He said He will do, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always be there for you. I'm the God who wipes away tears. 
our lack of taking God at his word is a surprise to the unfallen beings. The angels have never known what it is to not take God at his word. And so that's why they ask this question, why are you weeping? You've walked with the king. He told you he was going to be resurrected. Why are you grieving? You should be celebrating. Death has been shattered. Now, whatever causes Mary to stop her conversation with the two, we don't know. We don't know if at this moment they stand up because they see the arrival of the king, or perhaps they gesture. But for some reason, while she's in the antechamber, she feels the arrival of a presence behind her, and she turns and sees Jesus. Go with me to verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. I underlined the word saw for a very specific reason. We showed you three versions of the word saw earlier. Peter saw, he glanced at it. He didn't really see what was going on. Then John saw and perceived with intelligent comprehension. The saw that's used here is the same one that was used of Peter. She glanced at Jesus. She glanced at him, but did not know that it was Jesus standing there. Now, we can give her some benefit of the doubt. She's in this dark chamber, the antechamber. It's it's early, early morning. The sun is just rising. She's looking from a dark place out into a bright place. Perhaps it's just a silhouette that she sees there. But more than likely, it's this reason. The last image she has in her mind is of the Jesus who was on the cross, who's been scourged. He's been beat. He's bruised, bloody, and he's been encased in linen wrappings. That's the last vision she has of Jesus. So what she sees before doesn't match her vivid memories. No wonder she doesn't think it's Jesus and she thinks it's a gardener. Go with me to verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She never stops to consider how she's going to carry a full-grown adult man or how she would explain carrying a corpse over her shoulder if she was even able to do it. She's just so consumed with what she wants to do. She doesn't understand that God is at work right around her, and she can't see it because her despair is so great. So here's the bigger picture question. Why is Jesus standing right there? He didn't appear to the other women whom the angel revealed himself to. He didn't appear to Peter and John in this moment. Why is Jesus standing beside his own grave? I mean, you look at that passage and you see the statement, woman, why are you weeping? Do you know the last time we heard Jesus speak? It is finished. These are Jesus' first words after the resurrection. And why is that significant? Because when Jesus arrived on the scene in the early days of his ministry, three years earlier, we looked at this in the very early part of John, Jesus showed up in a synagogue and people recognized he was someone of prominence and so they handed him a scroll to begin reading the scroll. They opened up the scroll of Isaiah and Jesus said, I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives to bind up the brokenhearted. 
Is your God binding up the brokenhearted in this moment? Why are you weeping, woman? He's there binding up the brokenhearted. He's the God who does that. He is the God who wipes away tears. Is that not always God's response to those who are really seeking Him, who are brokenhearted, who are coming to Him in genuine soul-crushing experience? That's what your God does. So this is a wounded soul looking for Him, and Jesus knows Mary's heart is broken. So why is He right there at His own tomb? He sees one of His own is crushed, and He's going to comfort her. Now what I want you to notice next is that she had turned away from Him. They're in this conversation, and she turns away and she looks back in the tomb again. They've taken away my Lord, and I cannot find him. Sir, tell me, if you have taken him, where you've put him? Look at the very next verse, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni. It's very subtle, but you see that she turned She turned from what she was looking at. What was she looking at, church? Only one thing is necessary, and her eyes become wide open. A single word. No gardener would know her name. No one else would pronounce it the way Jesus does. And in this moment, it's the call of Christ on her life. When she's looking at death, Jesus says, Mary, and she turns to see the Savior. That's the moment when she recognizes him. And so Jesus transforms the weeper into a worshiper because instantly she falls at his feet and begins grabbing him around his feet. She's overcome with joy. Anguish and despair are left in the tomb. She's now consumed with victory and all she can say is Rabboni. Now the reason I pronounce it that way is very specific. When, when the Greeks translated this passage from the Hebrew over into the Aramaic and then into the Greek language and it was written down for us, the word rabbi is a word that we're very familiar with. The followers of Jesus called him rabbi all the time. It, it meant teacher, as rabboni does. But rabboni has an extra measure to it. It means my Lord. Every time Rabboni is used, it's in the same vein as when Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And at that point, that's when she falls and grabs his feet. And she's found him. She doesn't want to let him go this time. So go with me to verse 17. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Jesus permitted the other large group of women to touch his feet. But yet to Mary, he says, stop clinging to me. What's going on there? Well, he's not refusing to be touched. He's making it clear that she does not need to capture him. He has not yet ascended to the Father. He's going to ascend to the Father, but she doesn't need to hold him as though he's some guarded prize for her to cling on to. The resurrection is just a step towards returning to the Father. So he says, stop clinging to me. The ascension hasn't happened yet, Mary. I'm still going to remain, and he did remain for 40 more days. So he says, I'm in the process of ascending to my Father, and very specifically, to my God and your God, to my Father and your Father. Meaning, what he is to me, he is to you now. 
because the relationship has been established. And very specifically, in this message of comfort, for the very first time ever, Jesus uses the word brothers. Go and tell my brothers. It's never been used before in the New Testament up until this point. What's changed? The redemption on the cross. That's why Paul wrote about us being adopted sons and daughters into the kingdom of God as a result of the redemption. Jesus has conquered it on the cross, and now he calls them his brothers. That's why we're told in Hebrews 2.11, he is not ashamed to call us his brethren. That's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. This is the last verse for this morning. Mary has this response, verse 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So Mary of Magdala did exactly as she was instructed. She ran back to the disciples, gave this report. John's already believing this in his heart. And we're not told if the disciples received her the same way that they did the larger group of women. See, the larger group had made it back first. And they gave a report, and this is the response of the disciples, Luke 24, 11, nonsense. And they would not believe them. They considered the report like most of your friends who are not church people, who live outside the walls of a church, who have no relationship with God, nonsense. Why? Why would it even be important? Why did Jesus have to be resurrected? See, even the disciples didn't understand up to this point that Jesus must be resurrected. What is so significant in this point? Other than the fact that the difference of Jesus from any other world religion leader, Muhammad, Buddha, Krishna, Mahatma Gandhi, None of them were resurrected by God from the dead. Jesus is the only one. But that issue aside, why did Jesus have to be resurrected? Because it is the evidence that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was accepted by God as payment for your sins. So when Jesus was on the cross, and I told you this three weeks ago, he's being crucified and his last words were, it is finished. I told you the word is telestai, meaning the debt is paid in full. Payment has been made. Jesus being resurrected from the grave is evidence that God received that payment as payment in full, completely satisfying God's holy justice. How do I know that? Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions, our sin, and was raised because of our justification. We have been justified with God because He raised Jesus from the dead. He accepted that resurrection, saying this payment has been made completely in full. The resurrection confirmed this. Where sin was atoned for on the cross, death has been conquered, and eternal life has been given to you and I. So to say that you believe in Jesus and that you believe in the Jesus of the Bible but not accept the fact that God raised him from the dead is not possible. It is impossible to believe in the Jesus of the Bible and not believe that God raised him from the dead. To refuse that is to call God a liar. And so those who reject the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ are outside the sphere of salvation. I know that sounds really harsh, but that's God's word. It's true. 
those who reject the resurrection of Jesus stand outside the realm of God's salvation. This is what Scripture tells us. The last verse I'll give you today comes from Romans 10.9. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you notice there's two components to that church? Public and private. If you confess with your mouth, that's a public confession. That's why the church does baptism. We have a baptism coming up here in October, October 22nd. That's a public confession. I belong to Jesus. When you stand up and sing in worship and people are around you and you proclaim these songs, you're publicly confessing. I belong to Jesus. The private part is this, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So there's two components to that. You're telling people what you believe and you're owning it in your heart. It's not just something you say with your mouth. If that's an issue for you, it's something that you've never settled yourself, I'd be thrilled to be able to talk with you about that today. Michael's going to lead us in another song of worship, but I invite you, after we're done with worship, if you want to come and talk with me after the service, I'd be honored to be able to talk with you and help you settle this issue in your life so that you can resolve this. This It's a great day to do it. We're celebrating the resurrection. So in honor of that church, would you stand with me and we're going to pray together and then Michael's going to lead us in a song. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your church this morning celebrating the fact that we have a resurrected Lord and that this, this Lord, the same Jesus, will be coming one day in power and glory and honor according to the authority of your word. Father, those of us who stand in this auditorium today, look at these passages and rejoice when we belong to you. We know that we know that we know that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and that he's returning for us because our debt has been paid in full. But Father, for those whom we know and maybe even some in this auditorium this morning who may not be there yet, God, I ask that you would use your spirit to move in their heart that you begin working among them to cause them to deal with this issue, the reality that they have to confess you with their mouth and they have to believe in their heart. God, I ask that you would do this through the power of your Holy Spirit as we celebrate you and what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen.